Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who wants to leave the world a better place. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus, uh, the newly emerged 2019 NCV. NCOV. Joining us by phone is Dr. Scott Kinney. He's an assistant professor at the Department of Veterinary and Preventive Medicine, the Food Animal Health Research Program at Ohio Agricultural Research and Development Center at Ohio State University. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, um, I saw a Newsweek article, and this Newsweek article was from uh, May of 2018, and the headline was, Deadly Pig Virus Could Jump to Humans, which is why I, I reached out to you. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, that article in Newsweek. Yeah, so we uh, we did receive quite a bit of press on that article. Um, it was kind of interesting. So um, basically, um, my group here at Ohio State, we did a, a collaborative effort with a, a laboratory in the Netherlands. Um, the researcher's name is Dr. Berend Bosch. Um, and what we did is we, we took um, a Delta coronavirus, um, which is different than the emerging coronavirus, but they're um, similar, you know, cousins. Um, but what we showed was this Delta coronavirus, which was only known to infect pigs. Um, it's a pig pathogen, and it causes death in um, suckling piglets. Um, basically, we took in the laboratory, we took human cells and we took chicken cells, um, and then we took this virus from pigs and we put it on these cells, and we showed that these human cells and these chicken cells were actually susceptible to being infected by the virus. And basically what that um, um, told us or informed us of was that there's some potential that humans and chickens could be infected by this virus that was only thought to infect pigs. So pathogens jumping species, and that's a, that, why is that a problem? Um, so basically um, what you're seeing now, like this novel outbreak in um, Wuhan, China, so that's actually a beta coronavirus. Um, its name is 2019 novel coronavirus. Um, what they think happened in that case is that um, this virus, which was basically in um animal species, probably wild animals. They think maybe bats at this point, but they're not 100% sure. Um, so this virus went from bats to probably some kind of agricultural species that was in the market, um, potentially cats or other animals that are sold there. They don't have any proof of that yet. Um, and then it jumped into humans. Um, and coronaviruses in general, like all of the coronaviruses, are pretty well known to jump species. So um the danger to us is when, you know, it's in a pig or it's in a civet cat or it's in a bat, and then it jumps into humans, um, and it's seeing a novel host for the first time. And this virus can cause a lot of different problems, and it can make people sick. Um, in the case of um, this new virus, um, it's actually like SARS. If you remember the SARS outbreak from 2002, um, it causes a viral pneumonia. So basically it causes respiratory issues, and it kills humans. Um, and it's dangerous because, you know, humans have not seen this virus before. So animals like bats are accustomed to this virus. Um, they've seen it. They don't get sick from it very much. Um, but once it goes from the bat to the human, um, the human actually gets sick. Um, and the danger comes in is when um, the virus also changes to be able to go from human to human. And then we have something that's starting like in China where we have a pandemic and you start to see large numbers of people getting sick and um, it occasionally leads to people dying. Right. So the problem of a virus jumping from species is that our body hasn't had time to adapt. We don't have the ecosystems. It's like um, it's sort of like what happened with the Columbia Exchange uh, when Christopher Columbus brought diseases from one hemisphere, uh, from the Western Hemisphere, or from the Eastern Hemisphere to the Western Hemisphere. A lot of people died from diseases. Is that basically the idea? Yeah, that's, that's a very good analogy. Um, so, you know, humans right now are like the Native Americans. Um, basically, we haven't seen the diseases like smallpox or those types of things that, that the Native Europeans would have brought with them over from um, from Europe. Um, in this case, we have this novel coronavirus, which was in, you know, these wild animals. It's coming to jump into the human species, and the human immune system hasn't had any chance to... Um, see this virus before so we're kind of um we don't have any type of weaponry in our bodies to, to fight off this this virus which is bad for us of course okay and so uh, you have a new article being published um actually this week so tell us about that article or journal sure yeah so um we have a, a an article coming out in emerging infectious diseases um it's a, a magazine run by the centers for disease control um in atlanta 
Um, and basically, we, we followed up on that original um, National Academy of Sciences paper. Um, so we showed in that first paper that the virus could infect cells in a laboratory setting of um, humans, pigs, and chickens. Um, but we took it one step further. And so um, we're obviously not ethically allowed to um, try to infect humans with a virus because um, that would be a terrible idea. Um, so our next best system was to use chickens. Um, and our um, our research university, we have research chickens up here. Um, so we can actually take the pig virus and we can, under contained conditions, um, so we have BSL-3 and BSL-2 conditions so the virus doesn't escape, um, we can infect these different animal species. And we put um, the virus from pigs into chickens and turkeys. And these chickens and turkeys actually got sick from the virus. Um, this coronavirus actually causes um, enteric um, enteric disease, so basically it causes diarrhea. Um, and so our chickens got diarrhea, and our turkeys got diarrhea. And basically, if we could take birds that were not given the virus, we put them in with the birds who had the virus, and the birds that were put in actually got sick as well. So it shows that the virus you know, can both infect those species and it can be transmitted among those different species. So um, it is a little bit concerning um, that chickens can pass the virus around. They may act as an intermediate host and pass the virus back to pigs, um, and they may pass the virus to humans. Um, we haven't looked at you know this virus in humans yet, and so we're interested in following up on that aspect at some point in the future. Um, if the virus was dangerous to humans, um, we think there would have been reported cases by now, so we're not too concerned and so no one should panic about that at this point <laughs> right no one should panic and so i mean corona is a is a word that refers to a lot of different diseases so what you found um so tell us a little bit about just corona in general sure so coronaviruses are a family of viruses in the coronaviridae family um they're actually divided into um four different types there's alpha beta gamma and delta um and they differ by, you know, viral sequence. So they're, they all look different if you, you analyze their sequence composition. Um, and they infect different species. Um, so the um, alpha coronaviruses infect um, mostly mammalian species. Um, betas are what you have. We call those the human pathogens because um, it includes SARS, MERS, and some of the, the common cold um, types of coronaviruses. Um, Delta is the one that the papers were published on. Um, those are actually originally thought to be avian pathogens. Um, the porcine Delta coronavirus, which is what we showed, was actually one of the first mammals to have Delta coronavirus. Um, so we're trying to figure out how um, the you know, bird to pig transmission ha has occurred. And then the final one is gamma coronaviruses, and they only infect avian species like chickens or turkeys. So give us a view on how are the viruses affecting um, animal agriculture in the globe? Has there um, been an yeah, increase? So, um, there, there's, um, it's interesting. There's been several recent outbreaks of animal viruses that we're not sure where they came from, um, especially in swine. So um, in around 2009 um, in China, again, um, basically um, there's an outbreak of a, a porcine disease, so it was a, um, a called porcine epidemic diarrhea virus. Um, and this virus started in China. They're not sure exactly how it got into pigs again. Um, but then from China, it, you know, it's made its way basically around the globe. Um, and this was a huge issue in the United States around 2014 and 2015 um, when we lost large amounts of, of swine herds to this disease um, before it seems to have finally, you know, sort of stabilized um, at this point. But some farms still get um, this this. Um, it's a diarrhea disease, um, and, you know, you lose a lot of your, your suckling pigs at this point. Um, at the same time, Delta coronavirus was emerging. Again, we're not sure exactly where it came from, um, but, you know, thoughts are that it originated in China, and it's been co-migrating with um, PEDV, you know, sort of on the same. So Delta corona isn't as deadly as PEDV. So if you talk to a farmer, they usually know what PEDV is. Don't care too much about Delta corona, but... It's there, and it could, you know, potentially become a problem, or it, it is a minor problem. So any problem that kills pigs is obviously bad for the farmer, and they don't want that disease. Um, so, so I'm wondering, um, so, but at this point, there's no connection between the current outbreak of, of 
coronavirus and um, and pig and animal agriculture. There's no known connection. Right. So the novel coronavirus, you know, it's a beta coronavirus, and we haven't seen it in any domesticated animals yet. Um, and they think the origins, um, they think it probably or- originated in bats. Um, there's one publication that mentions snakes. Um, and in this live animal market, basically, they have all kinds of animals. So there's pigs, there's chickens, there's, you know, if you name the animal, um, you can probably find it in this live animal market. And their prevailing theory is that it went from bats because it has high sequence similarity to bat coronaviruses. Um, it probably jumped into an intermediate host in the market, um, maybe like civet cats like SARS or another type of, of intermediate species, and then it jumped to humans. And so we don't know if it'll go from humans to any other animal species. So um, if you have a virus like influenza, um, you can actually pass influenza from humans to pigs or chickens, and none of that has been studied at all with this novel coronavirus because it's just it's just too new at this point. So again, uh, um, your research was reported in Newsweek in 2018 that a deadly pig virus could jump to humans, but you don't think it's this current uh, virus that is is um, affecting us. Uh, do I understand that correctly? Correct. There's there's enough sequence divergence that we can tell that the new virus is a is a beta coronavirus. And the pig viruses are mainly Delta coronaviruses. Um, so if you align the two, you can definitely tell um, that they're, they're different origin viruses. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on American agriculture? Is it a good idea to have uh, 2 million pigs in tight spaces kept near a very large popula- population? Is that a good environment for, for these diseases? What, what can we be doing to, to be more um, rational? Um, I mean, it, 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 it seems to me like that's a natural breeding ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, of American agriculture, I mean, I, I love American agriculture. Um, it's you know, an efficient way to to cheaply produce um, large amounts of food to feed, you know, large populations. Um, in terms of, you know, large swine houses or chicken houses where there's thousands upon thousands of animals, um, you're definitely putting your eggs in one basket, right? And you're basically asking for an outbreak. So um, if you have a disease that comes through, if your biosecurity isn't good enough, um, you run the risk of losing thousands upon thousands of animals. Um, so in that aspect, you have to run a very, very clean herd or very, very clean flock to make sure that those animals are, you know, in, in high health. Well, I um, thank you. Terms- I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to need to take a break, but I'm going to thank you so much yeah. for joining us, um, Dr. Scott mm-hmm. Kinney um, with uh, Ohio State University. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, just don't panic because um, panic leads to bad decisions and we don't want that. Um, much like any other, you know, coronavirus, if you um, touch an animal, if you touch your environment, make sure that you wash your hands and don't touch your face before you've washed your hands. And those good hygiene practices will prevent you from getting sick in more cases um, than not. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Scott Kenny with Ohio State. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with the Land Stewardship Project. This President's Day weekend, bring your family to the Osprey Wilds Environmental Learning Center, formerly known as the Audubon Center of the Northwoods, on Grindstone Lake in Sandstone. The all-inclusive family weekend has locally sourced meals and winter activities like ice climbing, wildlife programming, skiing, and much more. Reserve your spot at ospreywilds.org or call 320-245-2648. Osprey Wilds, experience your environment. Did you realize that Drink in the Style is available on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much every other podcast platform out there? You can listen to past episodes of Drink in the Style, or maybe download our really cool martini glass graphic, or just listen to your favorite episode again and again. But if you do, I need to ask you for a quick favor. Hop online and give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show and also boosts my fragile ego. Drink in the Style. It's a great way to kill Sundays or really anytime at all. Finding the best foods the Twin Cities has to offer is easy with eatlocalminnesota.com. Offering the top local and independently owned restaurants, eatlocalminnesota.com has everything from burger joints to cocktails and fine dining. 
Crooners Lounge and Supper Club invites you to check out their beautiful facilities for your next special occasion. Book your wedding reception, retirement party, business dinner, or other special event with confidence, knowing their expert staff and award-winning chef will make it a big hit with your guests. Call today to get a quote, 763-571-9020. Specializing in Szechuan and Peking cuisine, the Great Wall Chinese Restaurant has been a local favorite since 1981. They offer one of the most extensive menus in the Twin Cities. Favorites include the sesame chicken, imperial beef, and Peking duck. The Great Wall Restaurant is located off 45th and France, with takeout available too. More at greatwallrestaurant.us. Hey, I guess we found a new name for our show. Really? What's the new name? Pilot's Progressive Party. How did you ever come up with that? (laughs) Pilot's our name and progressive fun is our game. (laughs) Well, what's that about? It's a one-hour news show with progressive guests and information you normally don't hear on the radio. Well, that's so exciting. I have a few ideas for guests myself. I know they'll be progressive. Wednesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. on AM 950. The Progressive Voice of Minnesota. I'm Nick Slavic, proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I've been a craftsman for 25 years. You'll not find someone who loves their job more than me. The process of painting your home could not be easier. Go to nickslavic.com, click on the button, paint my walls, or paint my cabinets. I'll personally be in contact with you to get an estimate, either in-home or a free virtual estimate. We move furniture, vacuum, sweep, dust, and put your home back the way we found it. We're not like other contractors. The sun comes out. We need the sun. The cloudiest January in Minnesota or something like that. We need some sun. And now hopefully that sun will come out. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline. And we're now going to talk about a new white paper on Minnesota agriculture's potential to mitigate climate change and improve water quality. Oh, sounds kind of nice. Mitigate climate change and improve water quality. Clean water, addressing the climate crisis, leaving the world a better place. In studio with us is George Booty, and he's with the Land Stewardship Project. Welcome. Welcome to the show, George. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Yeah, wonderful to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm uh, I am science and special projects lead of Land Stewardship Project. I was the executive director for 23 years prior to that. Uh, I have a background in science. I grew up in rural Minnesota. I live in Minneapolis with my wife where we raised our kids and uh, have been interested in biology and food and agriculture and how all of those come together along with uh, social justice issues. So tell us a little bit about the Land Stewardship Project. We're a nonprofit organization uh, located here in Minnesota, but we cover uh, a wide uh, range of uh, states and also uh, nationally. And we are a membership organization. We have 4,500 households, mostly rural and farm, but also including urban folks. Right. And uh, we focus on issues pertaining to the land and how, how to take care of the land, especially for the future, and to help farmers adjust their farming practices to protect soil and water and, uh, and air and provide healthy food for us to eat. We organize farmers and rural citizens and urban citizens to uh, advocate for policy, fighting the worst, advancing the best. At the local, state, and federal levels, we train beginning farmers. So we we look at this pretty holistically. And I can remember in uh, working in Montevideo in the 19, early 1990s, and Land Stewardship Project would do these wonderful plays about topsoil. And uh, it was a great fun way of informing people on the the, the, the little things we can do and, and so yes that that play was called planting in the dust I believe that you heard uh-huh. or saw and that was about three generations of farm women from the dust bowls up into the 60s and their experience of going through the times that they were in and sharing that back and forth with each other and talking about it and I do have to say you guys have the best potluck in the Twin Cities we have a great potluck. It's because people bring really good food <laughs> <laughs> in our mini in our office in Minneapolis. We also have offices in Montevideo and the western part of the state in Lewiston and Southeast. But yes, it's usually in July. Um, if you're members, you'll hear about it. If you're not, 
uh, we, we can crash. You, join. you can crash. Yeah. yeah, you can join. You can crash. You can it, crash. You don't have to be a member to come. No. Right. And so um, the Land Stewardship Project uh, recently released a new white paper, Farming to Capture Carbon and Address Climate Change Through Building Soil Health. So tell us a little bit about this white paper. Well, the idea behind this is that uh, farmers are seeing uh, things happening on their land that didn't used to happen. A small rainfall fall can be ponding on the surface of the soil. The soil is harder to work. Uh, it may take uh, more nutrients than it used to. And so they're getting interested and concerned about soil health, and some have moved pretty rapidly. And the, from our perspective, one of the best things that can happen about soil health is adding more living cover. We call it continuous living cover, but the idea is if you're growing corn and soybeans, which you see on the landscape, and you see a lot of black soil if you drive west, that can be covered throughout the winter by at least living roots, if not living plants during the winter. <laughs> so, uh, George, you're a biologist. Give us a, a brief history center, a history lesson on the history of the soil in Minnesota. I mean, when it used to, we used to have this really deep, top-rich topsoil. Yes, uh, the soils uh, in much of Minnesota, particularly the southern and western portions, were formed under the prairie. And the prairie was uh, grasses and many, many different species, um, uh, maybe a hundred or more species. I'm not exactly sure of the number, but a lot. And uh, they were. It was also formed in relationship with animals, large grazing animals, like bison and so forth, that that would graze that prairie and then move on, and they wouldn't return immediately. So the so the plants had time to regrow, and that formed amazing soils that we're still benefiting from now. Soils can be several feet deep in some of the prairie areas. Um, one, of the, one of the measures of soil is the organic matter content to it. Uh, organic matter is 58% carbon, so that's that we can come back to that. But we anyway, can, because that's a, that whole capture carbon, and, and and so, but then, and, and I'm trying to say this in a nice, nonviolent, peaceful way, but but it's actually a really tragedy what happened, what we what our human culture did with the soil. Well, we've treated the soil just like we treated forests or mining or anything else. We extract from it. So that's what we've done. We've probably, worldwide, uh, humans have probably lowered the carbon content in soils by as much as 50 to 70 percent in many of them, um, according to some of the scientists. scientists. And so um, we, I think we're learning. You know, we, we're a learning species. We maybe didn't know <laughs> what really needed to be done. Uh, but on the other hand, the indigenous peoples often found ways of doing things that didn't do that, didn't accomplish that. But um, when folks came from Europe, they didn't really listen too well to that. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I mean, it is about respecting, respecting soil, not treating the, not treating the soil like dirt. Yes. Yeah, that's a motto that we have. Stop, yeah. Let's stop treating our soil like dirt. Yeah. Yeah, and and recognize the limits. So, um, on the one, the background is that, and here's a really optimistic sentence. And this is what we're going to talk about in the next session section when we come back. We can reduce um, gas emissions by 25 percent by 2030 to limit global average temperatures that are less than two degrees. How do we do that? That's what we're going to talk about when we come back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. at Next Chapter Booksellers to find the perfect Valentine's Day gift for your significant other. They have a wide variety of books and lots of opportunities to meet local authors, like Chris McCormick on Wednesday, February 5th at 7 p.m. His new book, Gimmicks, follows two cousins from Soviet Armenia to Southern California and into the contrasting worlds of militant extremism and professional wrestling. That's Next Chapter Booksellers for the book lover in your life on Valentine's Day. Located on Grand and Snelling in St. Paul and at nextchapterbooksellers.com. When you need legal assistance, let the Minnesota Lawyer and Referral Information Service help you find the right attorney. It's a new and enhanced program of the Hennepin and Ramsey County Bar Associations. They have professional, experienced referral counselors who can connect you to vetted attorneys practicing in employment law, divorce, bankruptcy, DUI, and much more. 
the stress out of finding a lawyer. Call 612-752-6699 or go to mnlawyerreferral.org. The right call for the right lawyer. This is Chad, owner of AM950. I've been telling you about my friends at Snap Construction who are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior construction company in the metro. Don't just take my word for it. Take a look at all their reviews online. Winter is the most cost-effective time of the year to complete your construction project. A majority of Minnesotans choose to have their work completed on their home in the summer when they should be enjoying the weather. As a result, the demand for labor in the summer is much higher. The most cost-effective way to improve or restore your home is in the winter due to the lower demand. Right now, Snap Construction is offering an additional 30% off of labor to the AM950 listeners on your next construction project between now and the end of February. Call 612-333-SNAP and mention AM950 for an additional 30% off. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. Don't wait to get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Moe's Tax Service, family-owned and operated since 1971, providing a full spectrum of tax preparation and associated services. Think about it. Why would you take your most important financial information to a franchise operation with a cheap basic package that goes up dramatically once you're in the door? You can find out all you need to know about Moe's by visiting www.moestax.com. That's M-O-H-S tax.com. Or call them at 612-721-2026. Don't be a blockhead. Go to the professionals at Moe's Tax Service. AM 950 weather. I'm Patrick Lilia. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, high near 31. Tomorrow night, snow likely after 9 o'clock, low around 27. And Tuesday, cloudy temperature around 23. Victor's 1959 Cafe is the eatlocalminnesota.com restaurant of the week. Open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, offering traditional Cuban recipes in a relaxed, casual, and festive Cuban environment. Located at 3756 Grand Avenue in South Minneapolis. Details at eatlocalminnesota.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about a new white paper on Minnesota's egg potential to mitigate climate change and improve water quality. Yay! <laughs> with George Booty with the uh, Land Stewardship Project. Okay, so we must act to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% by 2030 to limit global average temperature increases to less than 2 degrees centigrade. Yes, um, that's what scientists are telling us. Um, you hear about that in the news. And uh, if we don't sort of turn this curve downward, we'll lock in at least a 2 degree centigrade um, temperature increase. And we're a little over 1.1 now, so we can already see what's happening. The fires, the catastrophic fires that, we, uh, that are happening now in ways that didn't used to happen, uh, floods, major floods more powerful hurricanes, weather that's very different than it used to be here in the Midwest. And that's hitting farmers pretty hard, actually. So we need to reduce um, by at least 25% by 2030. Um, how do we do that? Well, we, we have to have a full set of strategies. We have to lower our fossil fuel use and emissions, be, uh, better ways of transporting ourselves, um, Less energy wasted in heating and cooling buildings, for example. Less extra stuff that we really don't need that takes carbon right. I, I to was, produce. I, I was just reading an article on like the textile industry is actually a leader of, of the carbon. And it's because people buy cheap clothes now. And, you know, so going to those reuse stores. Yes. You know, reducing our, our use. And... Um, and certainly we got some opportunities there with solar energy, with wind energy, and using less, use, uh, producing it more carefully, recycling it when we can. And, and food is a big uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It has been for 10,000 years. 
<laughs> As we plow soils up, we lose carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, so we have an opportunity in the kind of food we eat and in the way that food is growing to also reduce greenhouse gases. Right. Now, I've heard organizations like Grain say it could be as much as 50%, and they're including the deforestation um, as a result of uh, you know cutting down the Amazon for beef production. Yes, we need to look at all of that. So food's a very significant emitter, um, and we there's action. Thankfully, there's actions we can take to uh, to control that. Um, different organizations count these things in different ways. The environmental U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has a smaller number, nine percent, nine percent, and they're counting a portion of greenhouse gases. So there's a whole suite of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide being the biggest one. But another one is nitrogen oxides, another one is methane, and those are particularly come also from agricultural emissions as well as other things, um, as uh, certainly as well. So the EPA is just counting nitrogen oxides and methane in, their, in the way that they calculate it directly to agriculture. Okay. And so uh, building healthy soil requires the uh, presence of a diversity of plants and, and their living roots. And has that been the dominant system that we have? We've moved, it used to be the dominant system, but we've moved away from that to specialize into things like corn, soybeans, monocultures of wheat, of rice, of cotton, and so forth. So the opportunity here is to um, introduce more diversity into those systems. And also, uh, corn and soybeans have come to be grown on land that's really not that suitable for them. You can do it. You can push it. But it takes more fertilizer on this marginal lands, we might term it, to achieve the same yield or even less yield. So, um, so there's opportunities there. And then, uh, so we can talk about how to do that. Yeah, so what is, why is corn and soy, what does that add to the carbon footprint? Well, corn particularly uses a lot of nitrogen in order to grow. And so a, a good bit of nitrogen is added to the soils to achieve high yields of corn. And that's where some of those nitrogen oxides, more nitrogen fertilizer leads to nitrogen oxide emissions, for example. Um, so that's one of the ways that it happens. Uh, the corn and soybeans are kind of leaky, so that nitrogen also runs down into wells or into the river and down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and that's part of creating the, the dead zone there for regarding uh, coastal marine fishing. Right, that dead zone, and also the nitrates in our water. Yes. That's a big problem that's with a all big the, problem. the water's impaired. Um, and then um, animal agriculture is also a major driver of um, climate emissions. It is. Um, uh, it uh, It's not, I would say, a new driver. We've had large animals, <laughs> large populations of animals on the planet for a long time. And in conjunction with grass, that system stored a huge amount of carbon right. that we've since released. So we do have this, uh, but there are ways of reducing that. So one of the things that this paper talks about is that within the corn-soybean system, we can have what's called cover crops, things like... Uh, uh, a rye grass or oats or turnips or other things or radishes that you can introduce that uh, do different things but they help provide diversity and living roots through the winter for example so if we do that on enough acreage that's part of what we're saying in this white paper if we got to 25 percent of our corn soybean acreage and cover crops for example on the good land that would be one part of achieving a 30% reduction in our emissions in Minnesota. So let's repeat this, because right now about only 3% of Minnesota cropland is planted in cover crops. That's correct. And uh, along with that is reducing the amount of tillage. So if we can move from aggressive tillage to something called no-till, which is pretty much what it sounds like, <laughs> <laughs> no-till plus cover crops is, is a good way to, to move this. So um, this makes a lot of sense. Why is it hard to make this transition? Well, it's hard because it's a new way of doing things for, it's not exactly a new way, but it's new to people who are now considering it. Um, we're also in the midst of a farm crisis. So pr commodity prices have been low now for a number of years, um, in part due to uh, the trade war, of course, uh, added to that. 
But it's not only that. It's a concentration in the industries that supply materials to agriculture and that buy from agriculture. All of those are, are highly concentrated industries. In some cases, four firms account for 60 to 80 percent of the market. Right, and that has been just devastating. We've had a horrible problem with dairy farmers and family farmers throughout the state of Minnesota. Are really, um, I mean, what is 2020 like for these families? It's a it's a very difficult time, and a number of people are facing. If if things don't go well for them this year, they may well have to go out of business. A number of them. Uh, it, so bankruptcies are increasing. Stress is is high in the farming community. And it's added to, as I mentioned uh, last year, uh, for example, it was wet early, uh, into the spring and then wet again in the fall and harvest was difficult. So, so the weather patterns are shifting so that uh, the way that people have gotten used to doing things is, is not uh, as predictable as it once was. So what can our listeners do to help um, Minnesota farmers and help the land stewardship projects in this, uh, in this uh, right now? Well, one of the things I also want to mention is that, that the, kind of, it's, uh, uh, the kind of grazing matters. So it's not so much the cow or the sow, it's the how. Not the cow or the sow, but the how. Because this how. is really important because we've had this conversation and, and it is a complex issue because, yes, eating a vegan diet is one of the best things to do on the planet right now um, to help with karmic. There's no doubt about that. On the same token, though, um, trying to move to these small grass-fed farms and actually supporting eco-responsible agriculture is also one of the best things to do. We can, we can uh, sequester more carbon through grazing on, on grasslands and also cover crops that are in the corn soybean system than we can without the animals, actually. I would say this is the nature of the prairie that we once right. lived in, and that's how grassland that's environments how operate. Okay, uh, now I'm going to have you be a third grade teacher or something. Say that in a really simple way. That okay? So why is it good for the animals to be on the farm, to be on the land? Why does that help with climate emissions? For one thing, animals like to eat a diversity of things to be healthy. So it it leads to more diverse plants on the land. That's one of the things that that helps. Um, the animals themselves, the way that they uh, affect the plant. So, for example, when an animal eats, it kind of yanks the plant mm -hmm. if it's grazing. Well, uh, that actually causes more root formation, and that's that causes the release of some of the plant's uh, carbon-rich materials it, into the soil. It, and can we think of that root system similar to what we might think of the Amazon? We see the, like the Amazon forest as above all those roots. And when you have a, um, a thriving root system underneath the ground, that also absorbs carbon. And, and it also uh, helps uh, fungi grow. And the fungi connect these plants. And so this is a, symbi it's a, it's a relationship that the fungi help create the carbon in the soil. And so, so do bacteria. Um, the, the soil is full of living organisms, uh, and that's where the, the health of the soil comes from. It, it needs to be a, a, a vital living uh, community of organisms. And so the, um, the, the common approach, the, I nickname it the industrial agriculture approach, which just sort of feeds the nitrogen on the top level plants, it doesn't have that vibrant um, um, soil. So that's why the monoculture is... Or, or contributes to climate change. Yes, uh, and that's why we want to see more diversity in the soil. Through cover crops is one way, and that can be multiple species cover crops. doesn't have to just be one species. And then grazing brings even more, and grazing helps uh, encourage the, the growth of those organisms in the soil as well and drops urine, drops manure evenly across the soil in amounts that the soil can handle. Um, and so some of the conclusions in this report is, one, is you concluded that as much as 9% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions could potentially be offset by shifting 25% of ruminants to well-managed grazing. And 25% and of our cropland to these more diverse, uh, better-functioning crops. And the reason, uh, one of the other reasons that that's uh, beneficial is that it reduces the amount of erosion. So when you have a... If you drive west again, you'll see black soils in the, in the fall and in the spring. 
And if a hard rain falls on those uncovered soils, that's, that can lead to erosion. Erosion loses carbon. Right. And then another thing is uh, based on similar adoption rates, um, you, you could uh, lower potentially lower Minnesota crop and livestock net greenhouse gas emissions by 30% compared to 2016. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what we believe by adding, uh, again, cover crops on good uh, row crop acres, shifting some of the marginal land that has lower yields into more diverse cropping systems, including grazing and shifting the kind of grazing that's happening to this managed rotational grazing. And that's where animals are moved, much like the buffalo did, actually. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're intentionally moved. Um, they're in high, high density. They're moved quickly. Cool. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with the Land Stewardship Project, George Booty, and uh, hey, a net reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from Amer- from Minnesota's agriculture system. Can we do that? We can. We can. We Why can. not? We can and then we can have cleaner water. And it will benefit farmers in their own systems. And maybe everyone would be more calm and playful, and life would be good again. Maybe so. Maybe. It's plain to see the Vacuum cleaners. You buy them, you break them, and then you throw them away, right? Well, if you're ready to break out of that vicious cycle, we have the answer. Ever heard of A1 Vacuum? They've been around forever, offering better alternatives. So if you're ready to stop filling the landfill, give A1 Vacuum a shot. Located in Roseville and ready to show you something better. Find them at a-1vacuum.com or call 651-222-6316. Better yet, drop by. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Join us for New Beginnings, Saturday mornings at 11, brought to you in part by Vision Loss Resources. This President's Day weekend, bring your family to the Osprey Wilds Environmental Learning Center, formerly known as the Audubon Center of the Northwoods, on Grindstone Lake in Sandstone. The all-inclusive family weekend has locally sourced meals and winter activities like ice climbing, wildlife programming, skiing and much more. Reserve your spot at ospreywilds.org or call 320-245-2648. Osprey Wilds, experience your environment. Being in the Army National Guard is about more than just serving your country. It's about being there for your community when your neighbors need you most. The Army National Guard makes college affordable. Serving part-time lets you attend school full-time while you take advantage of education benefits that can help you graduate debt-free. If a civilian career is your goal, serving part-time allows you to work at a full-time job. The skills, qualities, and contacts you'll develop in the Guard can open doors to a great civilian career. Want to serve but worried about being away from friends and family? Part-time service in the Army National Guard allows you to serve close to home. Serving in the Army National Guard lets you have the life you want while you enjoy the many benefits of serving your community and nation. You owe it to yourself to learn more about how the Army National Guard can fit into your life. Visit NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Minnesota Army National Guard. Aired by the Minnesota Broadcasters Association and this station. A student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone that just, you know, wants to have clean water and wants to mitigate the climate crisis and and make it better for future generations. Um, we've been talking about the potential of Minnesota egg system to um, to mitigate the climate crisis. And in studio with us is George Booty uh, with the Land Stewardship Project. And... Uh, 
farmers, this can all be on the backs of individual farm owners. You have some very specific policy recommendations. Um, so share those with us. Yes, um, we need to assist farmers to, to make these changes because they made the changes they have made because policy oriented them that way, because markets oriented them that way. They were told to get big or get out, all this monoculture, we're going to compete, we're going to feed the world, this is what we're doing. So those are the messages. Those are the messages. Farmers have done what has been asked of them, if you will. Um, now, certainly, there's some that have departed. So, how how can we best help farmers make some some of the shifts that might be in their own self interest to do, as well as in the interest of the climate and our state's waters? One of the things is we do need to fund more research. The University of Minnesota has an exciting initiative called Forever Green, for example, that's helping to breed and develop markets for some new crops like a perennial wheatgrass. Most wheat wheat is annual. This is a perennial wheatgrass. Well, I do permaculture. Perennial food seems like like heaven. It's a, it's it's the way it would be best if we could go there. <laughs> uh, we won't be able to go there and everything, but but um, so that's exciting. There's also new cover crops that are coming that are being developed that can be very useful and create new markets for farmers. Cover uh, both currants and, and cover crops can be grazed. That brings a net return to farmers more quickly. So, currants and then the other grain that you were talking about earlier. Well, there's a an, an oil seed crop called camelina. Um, and camelina is being developed um, by the University of Minnesota and others. And um, what that has the opportunity to do is be grown during the winter as a separate cash crop, pressed for oil in, in uh, like soybeans are, for example. And it can be used to f- create plastics, to for jet fuel, a number of different things. So um, that's an example of another one. So that kind of research at the University of Minnesota in Morris, Minnesota in the West has an exciting research on organic pasture-based dairying. And there they're showing how you can lift solar collectors a little higher and graze cattle underneath them. So you get two solar <laughs> crops, grass for cattle, for dairy, and electrons. Cool. So that's exciting as an example. Um, they can uh, the university can do more on on researching managed rotational grazing. The university needs our support. We that, that they do, uh, and the researchers do. We can uh, secondly we we can, we need to make uh, these kinds of practices and systems part of climate uh, discussions, like the Green New Deal, or Governor Walz's climate um, sub cabinet. So we're trying to propose that to people to include this. Um, one of the best ways we can do this is farmers learn from each other. Uh, that's the way they kind of trust information that comes to them oftentimes. So we, need, we can in, increase technical assistance. That is to say, managed grazing is different than just leaving the cows out there to do what they will. And soil health is a point of unity. It is soil health is this is it's a bridge between all of these things and it's a bridge to long-term reduction of net costs for farmers to get them off that kind of expensive technological treadmill. So, um, so more technical assistance and cost share. We can shift our existing programs to to do more of that and bring some new programs online. Uh, we need markets. We need markets for Kernza, for example. General Mills is helping with that in conjunction with the University of Minnesota. We need markets for grass-fed beef that have been eroded by some of the changes that have been made at the national level, getting rid of country of origin labeling, for example. Most, most of the grass-fed beef coming into this country that we eat is imported now. And some of it's coming from uh, Brazil, where they're cutting down rainforests to produce it. But it's marked grass-fed, so I'm buying it thinking I'm doing a good thing, and I'm actually yes. cutting down the rainforest. In some cases, not everywhere. Uh, not, yeah. it's, it's New Zealand and Australia uh, can produce this, too, in a, in a more reasonable way. But um, So we need to enhance markets, and the, and the uh, Minnesota Department of Agriculture can do more to help us with that. And, uh, you know, right now, one of the things that's being talked about is paying for carbon credits, or there's different ways of thinking about this. We're concerned that these systems will just benefit the largest farmers. Um, so we need to design them carefully and, and take account of all of the costs, the true costs of food, so we know where our missions are and how much those are, as well as our reductions. It's the net of those that we need to reduce. Otherwise, we're not really getting at what needs to happen. 
Uh, so there are many costs to food, including uh, racial inequity that's part of our built into our food system that we we need to be able to count in this. There's a uh, a bill in the legislature the last session for something called the Genuine Progress Indicator that accounts mm-hmm. for these things, not just GDP growth, mm-hmm. which only is the additive, the new things that are done. But what about all of what's our general state of well-being? This really matters. Well, yeah. So I'm, that's one I mean, example. I can hear someone, someone else saying, yeah, you know, if you have a car accident the day you got cancer, then you're great for the GNP. If you're just sitting there healthy, you know, in the sun, then the GNP, you know, might, it might not rank that high. So but, we've got to really think about whole systems. Yes, but something like the genuine uh, progress indicator would account for that. Right. That your yeah. well-being is better. Um, and then we need to modify the federal farm bill, which is a, a huge uh, piece of legislation, comes around every five years. Well, and how that's connected to our personal health. I mean, our fruits and vegetables are too expensive yes. for a lot of people. And, and it's silly that, and tragic that, that we have this system that we do because it just rewards actually unhealthy food. It does. And the, fed, the farm bill is really our nation's food uh, policy, Yeah, in effect. Um, so the state of Minnesota uh, has passed a local foods initiative, for example. So mm-hmm. we could start bringing more of these kinds of products into our institutions like schools yeah. or prisons or whatnot. I know. We're almost down to our last minute. And you also wanted to mention that maybe some, a lot of fa- farmland is now rented. And yes. so owners of farmland, which you know may have some listeners here, but they can also be part of the solution. 50% or more of farmland is rented. And so farmers need permission to make changes on the land that they're renting from their landowner. <laughs> so the, and, and that's a two-way street, but we do have something called a conservation lease toolkit on our website that you can find that helps landowners think about soil health, for example. That's the value of their asset is, is the health of the soil in one sense and, uh, and how to engage a farmer to make change it's a relationship it's a relationship to build a relationship yeah so tell us again about how people can find out more about the land stewardship project and read this white page so white uh, if, if you go to www.landstewardshipproject all one word dot org you can find this white paper it'll be on the front page for example and our conservation lease toolkit uh, you can find on there as well under stewardship of food so uh, we invite you to take a look and and join if you haven't if you're not already if you are a member thank you yeah thank you and uh, the potluck is fantastic so. potluck is fantastic you know, <laughs> next july next july okay next yeah. july so thank you for listening to food freedom radio let's hope the sun comes out this week we're ready for it uh food freedom radio thank you george with the land stewardship project thank you laura great to be on N- thank you to your day. listeners too yeah.